Welcome to Room 106. I'm Richard Garlick from Planning Magazine. And I'm John Gagan, also from Planning Magazine. Every week, we descend into Room 106, the world of pain in which professionals encounter all new planning information and extract the key things you need to know. This is a bonus edition in which we'll highlight the key changes that the Leveling Up Act, which gained royal assent last week, is due to make to the planning system. Later on, we'll also be asking how developers and councils can make best use of the additional two months they've been given to get ready for the new rules that will require development to boost biodiversity. But before we get into that, John, tell us about the key news stories from the past seven days. Up first is a last-minute change to the Leveling Up and Regeneration Bill, which has now been passed. The government agreed to insert in the bill that the proposed national development management policies should have regard to the need to mitigate and adapt to climate change, but it also blocked a House of Lords amendment to allow virtual council meetings. In national policy news, the government has announced that developers will have 30 months to conform to the impending requirements for residential buildings over 18 metres high to include a second staircase. But any projects that do not meet the new rules must get underway in earnest within 18 months. Meanwhile, new government guidance encourages planning professionals to consider the risks of suicide associated with buildings and public spaces when creating local design policies. In the courts, a judge has overturned a council's permission for a part retrospective application to allow the operation of a dairy farm after he ruled that a planning officer had wrongly concluded that it would be able to carry on without the consent and had failed to properly consider the impacts on a nearby protected site. And finally, the High Court has overturned a planning inspector's decision to uphold a council's refusal to grant a lawful development certificate, potentially resurrecting plans for the construction of four homes that were approved as part of a 35-year-old planning consent. Okay, well, many thanks, John. And of course, more details on each of those stories can be found on planningresource.co.uk. Okay, so now to return to Room 106 for our deep dive. See you later, John. Rather you than me. Good luck. Well, here I am in Room 106 again. I need to make my way back to the colossal cavern in which parliamentary paperwork is stored, where I hope I'll find our senior reporter, Samantha Eckford. Ah, there she is. Hi, Sam. Hi, Richard. So, Sam, you spent Friday writing up the 35 ways in which the Leveling Up and Regeneration Act will change planning report, which subscribers can find on planningresource.co.uk. Yes, lucky me. Indeed. So... Having spent that time looking at it, can you just remind us essentially what's happened? Yes. So this is the news that the Leveling Up and Regeneration Bill, which of course was first published back in May 2022, has now received royal assent. So last Thursday, the Department for Leveling Up, Housing and Communities announced that the bill, now the Leveling Up and Regeneration Act, had received royal assent and had now become an act of parliament. Okay. So there are lots of things that this act is going to change about planning, as made clear by your your article. But what would you describe as the Act's headline changes? So the Act makes a number of wide-ranging changes to the system, including the introduction of new design codes, a proposed new infrastructure levy, which is designed to replace 
or partially replace the community infrastructure levy and Section 106 payments. The Act gives more weight to local plans, neighbourhood plans and spatial development strategies, while at the same time limiting local plan scope to locally specific matters, with this new suite of national development management policies proposed to cover issues that apply in most areas. It also drops the duty to cooperate in favour of a new, as yet undefined, alignment test. Uh, It also changes the way in which local authorities will be expected to prepare their local plans and introduces new street votes, uh, a new system for environmental assessment, as well as introducing measures on planning enforcement and compulsory purchase. I mean, I could go on, but there's a few of the headline changes. Okay, fair enough. So there's plenty there. Now, has that all come into force as of Thursday afternoon last week? No. So many of the Act's provisions rely on secondary legislation, and so the changes they propose are yet to come into force. So this means practically and and legally not much has, has actually changed. For some of the provisions, the legislation sets out a timetable for when they'll be introduced. For example, according to consultancy Litchfield, the sections relating to the introduction of commencement notices and completion notices, the power to decline to determine applications in cases of earlier non-implementation, and a condition requiring development progress reports, there is a provision in the Act that confers a power to make regulations within two months to allow the necessary legislation to be made. But for most of the Act's provisions, it looks like it's not as simple as the bill simply gaining royal assent. There's still a long way to go. Okay, that's interesting. So those measures you're talking about that could be um, brought into effect within two months, they're all measures to do with putting more pressure on developers to build out schemes for which they've got planning permission more quickly. Yes. Okay, and how did the sector react? So I'd say there was a slightly muted response, um, of course, because with many commentators pointing out that practically actually not much has changed. Um, So many appreciate that while the bill getting royal assent is a big step, there is still a long way to go before its its proposed changes filter into the system. Indeed, one commentator pointed out that one area of the Act where there is a real lack of detail is the new environmental outcomes reports, which are designed to replace environmental impact assessments. As we don't have the new regulations which will ensure their implementation, we'll have to wait to see how exactly they're proposed to operate. This is one of the many areas of the bill, of course, that the government consulted on earlier this year, so we we await the outcome of that and many other consultations for further details on how this will work. Okay, yeah, there was a local plans consultation, wasn't there, which is going to determine how, uh, how some of the provisions of the bill related to local plans are carried forward. Yes, there was, yes. But it's worth saying that even if there's not concrete secondary legislation for a period... People are suggesting that this news may leave some areas in a bit of a limbo. So, for example, there's a suggestion that the Act's removal of the duty to cooperate, even if not immediate, is likely to lead to a bit of a vacuum, as the new alignment test which is proposed to replace it has not yet been brought forward. So the suggestion is that the lack of details on this, coupled with the promised removal of the duty to cooperate, may make it difficult for inspectors to challenge a plan on the basis of its duty to cooperate in the interim. However, on the flip side... There is hope that this move may lead to a flurry of activity on the local plan front, as those authorities that have been pausing or delaying their plans, citing this political uncertainty, should potentially now be confident that they can progress their plans in a way that will allow them to sort of take advantage of these proposed revisions to the system and potentially deliver a plan that might not necessarily meet its standard method figure for housing need. Okay, and what next? So in terms of the secondary legislation required to bring much of this forward, we did ask the Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities about the timescale for the introduction of this legislation, and they declined to comment. So we don't know yet how and when they're going to bring this programme of legislation forward. I'm sure many in the sector will be waiting with bated breath for the promised update to the National Planning Policy Framework. 
The statement announcing the bill had gained royal assent made reference to this, saying that the government's response to last December's consultation on the MPPF update would be published in due course. This is slightly different to what Housing Minister Rachel McLean had said the week earlier when she told the Commons that an updated MPPF would be published as soon as the bill received royal assent. But aside from the MPPF, we've got a number of consultation responses to look forward to, such as plan making, as we mentioned, the environmental outcome reports. So plenty to keep us busy in the meantime. Thank you very much, Sam. And uh, I guess you will be spending a bit more time in here over coming weeks because, um, as you've explained, there's clearly a lot of secondary legislation to come. Yes, I'm sure I'll see you soon. Right. Now, in a recent episode of the podcast, we reported that the government had put back implementation of the new requirement for development to actually increase biodiversity. Now, I wanted to find out a bit more about that and specifically how councils and developers can best make use of the extra time. So to do that, I'm going to have to move across into another part of this huge cavern to the area where they keep government documents where I think I will find our special correspondent, Joey Gardner, who's been covering this issue of so-called biodiversity net gain quite extensively recently. And I think I can see him. Yeah, Joey, hi. Hello, Richard. How are you? Very good, yes. Now, Joey, you've um, written quite extensively on biodiversity net gain for us recently, including a, a special report that people can find on the website. But just to start off with... Can you remind us about what the concept of biodiversity net gain is? Quite simply, biodiversity net gain is the concept that any application submitted to a planning authority should have to propose that a development results in an increase in the biodiversity on the site that the development is happening on. And the specific biodiversity net gain proposal that the government has um, voted through is for a 10% net gain. So all development should result in a 10% increase in biodiversity on on sites. Okay, sometimes easy to forget, I think, what a sort of radical idea that is, really, that I guess most of us will have grown up just kind of assuming that development destroys biodiversity. So... um, it is clearly it's an ambitious um, objective. But just looking at the practicalities, what requirements are local authorities and developers going to have to meet? Well, as I said, it's quite a simple basic concept, but it hides huge numbers of layers of complexity. The, you know, the idea, as I said, is that there should be an increase in biodiversity of at least 10%. This is from a baseline level of the site as measured in January 2020, and it should be an increase of 10% as calculated via the government's biodiversity metric, which is a software platform, really, or a, a metric, a way to measure the way that different habitats create biodiversity in an area. The way that the legislation or the way that the the government has set out its biodiversity policies so far are saying is that if net gain can't be delivered on site, the proposal is that off-site delivery will be permitted where it can be guaranteed for 30 years 
on alternative sites in, in different places or via the purchase of government credits. Only developments of more than 25 square metres will be required to deliver biodiversity net gain. Householder applications will be exempt, as will be very small self-built homes. Sites of less than 10 dwellings or of less than uh, 1,000 square metres if they're commercial development, for those sites, the introduction of biodiversity net gain will not come into force, as it were, until a, a later date, until April next year, in any event. So there, there's there's quite a lot of complexity, and I, I've really only scratched the surface there, but there's there's lots of complexity sitting under what's quite a simple kind of top line. But one thing that was very simple and clear to people until very recently was that these requirements were due to come into effect in November. And that's now not going to happen, as we, as we learned recently. So, so when will that now happen? The government has said that the statutory mandate set out in legislation in the 2021 Environment Act will come into force in January now, albeit it hasn't set a specific date for that. When I asked the government, I said, well, should we presume it's just from January the 1st? And they said, absolutely not. We just haven't set the date. Yeah, so it could be any date in January. So that's effectively a two-month delay. It's also worth bearing in mind that nationally significant infrastructure projects will also have to deliver 10% biodiversity net gain, but the due date for those projects delivering biodiversity net gain is 2025 rather than January 2024. And um, has the delay been greeted with frustration or relief? Well, I would say it's been greeted with a fair degree of both, actually. I think given where the sector is and where the level of preparedness is, particularly of the government and particularly of the regulations needed to allow the statutory mandate to come into force, probably the predominant emotion has been one of relief, really. People really didn't think that the sector was going to be ready. And this is largely because there was lots of underlying guidance and a fair degree of regulation, uh, other templates and other bits of government work effectively that had been promised prior to the mandate coming into force that uh, simply has never emerged up, up until this point and that the sector really needed to see in advance of the mandate coming into force. So therefore, the idea of a delay at this point was, I think, greeted with a degree of relief that effectively the two things, the publication of all this information and the mandate itself weren't actually going to end up coming in at exactly the same time. I think that was the uh, nightmare scenario that people wanted to avoid. However, I think the frustration comes from the fact that the sector probably questions why it is really that we've got to where we are, really, given that it's been obvious from the two years since the Environment Act was passed, how difficult all this was. It has been obvious that all of these additional guidance and regulation needed to be published and set out and how much work needed to be done. And the government really hasn't hasn't got its head round actually doing it and you know has, hasn't got that stuff out there. Okay, so what are the key bits of guidance and regulation 
needed for the biodiversity net gain system to start operating that we haven't yet got? There's a huge amount of it, really. I think probably most important is the statutory instrument that will be necessary to bring into force uh, the biodiversity net gain rules set down in the Environment Act. This is important because it's expected to set out the legal requirements for applications and validation, such as the expected requirement for developers to include a a biodiversity net gain statement alongside applications. But in addition to that, we need to have the final version of the statutory biodiversity metric. We need to have a draft biodiversity gain plan template. We need to have habitat management and monitoring plan templates, legal lists of exemptions to requirements for for net gain, definitions of significant on-site habitats, contained in the Environment Act and reams of different biodiversity net gain guidance, uh, such as how to use Section 106, uh, or when and where it's acceptable to provide off-site provision, etc. And then uh, uh, possibly most crucially, we need the setting up of a, a register of off-site habitats for biodiversity uh, net gain offsetting purposes. Okay. And when's government saying it's going to be ready by? All of that should be published by November. That's what the government has said, with the exception of that final point, the register, which the government has said will come in with the mandate itself at the time of the mandate in January, at whatever specific date that is. Okay, so that's all going to hopefully come out, or is due to come out by the the end of the month. Still doesn't give people much time to digest it before the system is implemented in, in January. You talked about the relief in some quarters that people have got a little bit more time to prepare for for this. But what do we know about how well prepared the sector is for the, the introduction of these um, these new biodiversity gain requirements? It's pretty hard to provide a single answer, really, because I think there's, there's a large amount of um, variation. But I think one thing is clear and that there is going to be a large number of authorities that aren't going to be ready i think i think that's fair to say the planning advisory services is pointing to a lot of recent progress in terms of the engagement they're having from from local authority they say they've trebled the size of the network of practitioners that are now engaging with the kind of work that they're doing but the data shows that you know there's still going to be big big gaps the association of local government ecologists their research shows that just 5% of local planning authorities think they have enough ecologist resource to implement net gain with a quarter of planning authorities having no ecologist resource at all. And then research by Carter Jonas finds that less than 10% of authorities have an adopted net gain policy in place and um, less than a third have one in draft. So You've got somewhere around 60% of authorities sitting with with no net gain policy either in place or in draft. That's as part of their, their local plan. That's as part of their local plan and in a situation where the advice is that, that having net gain policies is going to be crucial for local authorities in reaping some of the some of the wider benefits of biodiversity net gain in terms of using it to foster wider nature recovery etc and 
local authorities are pointing to the fact that they're being quite badly hamstrung by the fact that the funding isn't there. The government has said that there will be further funding to implement net gain next year, but they as yet have not given any indication as to how much that will be from April. So uh, quite a lot of evidence that people are underprepared and uh, and don't have the information or, or, the, or the funding that they they need. Nonetheless, you know, despite all of that, for planning authorities who want to make the best fist of it they can, what can they do to make best use of the two-month delay? I mean, there is still lots and lots that they can do, notwithstanding the missing regulation and guidance. For anyone not really engaged in this thus far, the first thing you can probably do if you haven't already started is to engage with the planning advisory service, which has been working really, really hard to try and get local authorities up to speed on this issue. Check out the planning advisory services readiness checklist. It's it's got a net game readiness checklist, which goes through in just the right level of detail exactly what local authorities can do and where the gaps are and what they need to wait on. The priorities really identified within that are commencing work on drawing up a net gain implementation plan for your authority, getting this agreed with senior officers and members, and establishing appropriate internal governance, and thereby kind of assuring buy-in across the authority. Authorities will need to start training their planning and validation officers, their development management officers, to get them as ready as possible to accept applications when that starts happening in January and to get them used to interpreting the biodiversity network. And authorities should start thinking, if they haven't done already, pretty urgently about ensuring that sufficient ecologist expertise will be available to process applications because uh, ecologist expertise is going to be absolutely vital in terms of interpreting the claims made by developers as to the level of net gain that their particular applications delivers. The other thing that authorities need to do is to start thinking about the broader implications of um, biodiversity net gain. How can you as an authority use biodiversity net gain to further your own biodiversity and nature recovery aspirations I guess that's the real potential to win here, I guess, for an authority, because the idea is that you could potentially effectively get developers to fund that improvement in biodiversity. If you think about it strategically enough, you can get developers to fund through their offsetting requirements the improvements in biodiversity that you want to see across your authority but only if you think about it and only if you plan it strategically. And what about developers? What sort of active steps can they be taking? Again, there's lots developers can do, again, notwithstanding the missing information. The first port of call probably is to start by upskilling land, planning, technical staff, ensuring that those people really understand the implications of biodiversity net gain. That means that developers are going to be able to ensure that their sites have got proper baseline assessments and that their designs, their their scheme designs and their valuations of their schemes have been drawn up with a proper understanding of the implications of biodiversity net gain so they don't they won't have to suddenly redraw 
their schemes at a later date or make new assessment or get suddenly get hit by viability concerns later on because they realise that they've got to do something completely different in order to meet a net gain requirement than they thought originally. Particularly key in this is going to be understanding early in this stage whether individual schemes are going to be likely to need offsetting or whether you're going to be able to provide all of your biodiversity net gain requirement on site. And when you say offset, that means when you provide, rather than providing the biodiversity boost on site, you do it somewhere else in the country as a sort of, you can't do it on the site itself, so you boost the biodiversity somewhere else in the country. Yes, and it's certainly, you wouldn't expect to do all of that on an, on an alternative site, but you, could, you would get as far as you can on the site itself. But what you can't provide on site, you would then seek to provide on an alternative site. And the incentive would be to do that in the local area rather than somewhere completely separate in the country. But yes, the idea is that a developer should get an early sense of that because the market is pretty immature for this at the moment. And so the idea that you'll be able to suddenly just go out into the market and procure a landowner who's willing to give you a site for for offsetting at the drop of a hat during the middle of of a hotly contested planning process, it's quite unlikely. You're going to need to get all of your ducks in a row, for want of a better phrase, before you submit something for planning really, because it's not something you're going to be able to sort out on the fly. Okay, so how much of a problem is that going to be? If the if the system by which you can do this offsetting and, you know, effectively do your biodiversity improvements somewhere else or off-site, if that system isn't really up and running at the moment, how much of a problem is that going to be? And am I right to say that, you know, that the system doesn't look like it's going to be up and running. How confident are local authorities and developers that there will be a system and a, and a market in place for this kind of offsetting to work by January when, when, when all this is supposed to start? Well, I think it's safe to say they're not confident that this system is going to be up and running. And while it's still entirely possible that, albeit with a few teething problems, we will get into January and things will bottom out and and people will quickly start to work out how the system works once it's kind of in in flow and in practice. I think this is people's biggest concern probably at this stage is really the number of the level of uncertainty around this offsetting provision, certainly given the importance that lots of people are are attaching to it because developers, albeit that many developers would prefer to deliver the uh, biodiversity net gain on site, lots of developers feel that it's likely to be inevitable that many, many sites will require off-site um, delivery. Local authorities, from their point of view, the ones that have got further ahead with biodiversity net gain actually see the off-site delivery of um, biodiversity net gain as potentially a, a really key and important benefit of the policy. And they're really very keen for this to happen because it's the way that they can use this policy strategically to deliver wider biodiversity benefits across their boroughs. 
but there are lots of issues effectively standing in the way currently as they see it from this potentially happening straight away. So currently, there are no really effective marketplaces for for developers or local authorities to go to to secure these sites. As I said before, the the promised government register of sites is not going to be up and running until the biodiversity net gain mandate itself is is live. So there'll be no chance to see these sites until biodiversity net gain itself is is up and running. Conservation covenants, which were meant to be the way in which you would secure agreements with landowners for them to preserve or for them to promise to uh, keep land in a certain condition over a 30-year period, those don't appear to be ready to work at this stage. So um, local authorities and developers are are left leaning on Section 106 agreements, trying to kind of bend Section 106 agreements at the moment to enforce these, these particular promises. And at the same time, there remain huge uncertainties about the tax system and how the tax system is going to treat the income earned by landowners from these types of deals, meaning that landowners are being somewhat hesitant in actually signing deals for these things. So one of the people I spoke to said, lots of landowners are coming forward having discussions about this, but there's not many actual deals being done because the advice landowners are getting is that there's a lot of uncertainty about what they will make from it and it's obviously tying up their land for 30 years they're having to make legal agreements to tie their land up for 30 years so there's a lot of uncertainty about whether there's going to be enough land available whether that system's going to work how it's going to work and i think it's a big worry for people okay well thank you very much joey there's clearly going to be a lot for us to follow. I'm sorry to say, on, on behalf of you and others writing about this for planning, that I could see they've been um, digging out new chambers to accommodate all the extra documentation that's going to be needed to finalise the um, biodiversity net gain arrangements. So I think you may be back in here before too long or, or others from planning. But um, in the meantime, thank you very much for that and uh, look forward to seeing you in here again soon. Thanks very much, Richard. Okay, time to get out before there are any more announcements or decisions. Great, that's another edition completed. We'll be back next week with another update on the past fortnight's biggest planning news stories. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts. And to get a daily bulletin of planning news plus weekly analysis and specialist bulletins, subscribe at planningresource.co.uk. Our thanks to producers Inga Marsden from Haymarket Business Media and Daisy Chaku from Rethink, and thanks for listening.